Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everyone. My name is Emily Friedlander, and you're listening to episode 18 of the Thump Podcast. Each week, we bring together a panel of Thump editors to discuss the people and stories shaping contemporary electronic music and nightlife. Today, we'll be doing a two-part special about a movement currently underway in New York to overturn the city's controversial cabaret law, also known as the No Dancing Law, which is a piece of Prohibition-era legislation forbidding dancing in venues that do not hold a so-called cabaret license. In part one, we'll be talking to District 37 City Council member Rafael Espinal and Discwoman co-founder Frankie Hutchinson about the law's prejudicial history and the ongoing repeal effort. In part two, we'll speak to local venue owners John Barclay and Rachel Nelson about how the cabaret law impacts small businesses like theirs and New York nightlife as a whole. So I'd like to welcome Rafael Espinal and Frankie Hutchinson to the podcast, along with Thump's associate editor, Ezra Marcus. Do you want to introduce yourselves and talk a bit about the work that you do? Sure. My, my name is Rafael Espinal, as you said, and I'm a city councilman who represents neighborhoods of North Brooklyn, an area where I was born and raised and continue to live. And uh, nightlife is uh, very important to me, and it's something that uh, I've been wanting to fight for uh, throughout my career in politics, and I'm glad we're at this moment. My name is Frankie DeCase Hutchinson. I'm one of the co-founders of Discwoman, a platform dedicated to diversifying electronic music. And I'm also one of the co-organizers of Dance Liberation Network, which was created solely for the um, intention of repealing the cabaret law. And I'm Ezra Marcos. I'm associate editor at Thump, and I've been following the story closely as it develops. So tell me, what exactly is the cabaret law? So the cabaret law is a law used to regulate dancing in the city. It was enacted in the late 20s during Prohibition as a way for that mayor to kind of weed out bars and clubs that were selling alcohol. It carried on through the 30s and 40s as a way to check the clubs in Harlem. Uh, They were actually trying to crack down on intermingling in the Harlem jazz scene. They didn't want white folks dancing with African-American folks, unfortunately and ridiculously. And then uh, in the 90s, Mayor Giuliani, when he took office, he launched a quality of life campaign, and he used this law to actually shut down bars and venues that he felt were a nuisance to the city and were kind of being an issue to the overall quality of life for our city. Wasn't there also something called a cabaret card at the beginning of the cabaret law? Yeah, so they kind of uh, introduced this cabaret card, which meant that... 
musicians had to carry a card to be able to perform and like more often than not black musicians were reprimanded on the basis of them like losing their card or being put out of work because of that situation so it was almost like another tool of a way of like controlling like black folks in that period of time i like to think of it like another sort of tentacle of the cabaret law it's like you know what you can't dance and you also can't play it's interesting because it was also they stopped uh there's only certain types of instruments that like people could use and um saxophones were banned percussion instruments like instruments that had a real like direct relationship to like the african-american musical scene you know so people sort of argue that this is not racially motivated is absurd to me because obviously it is i actually read some history that frank sinatra actually led a movement to do away with the cabaret card because he felt that his african-american counterparts were being targeted by the city and not being allowed to play in certain uh, venues because of that reason. Was the law used to target LGBTQ community as well? Yeah, I mean, it it was used during the Stonewall movement. Uh, I've heard stories about the police also going and shutting down LGBTQ establishments to, again, not allow for uh, folks to dance and intermingle. I actually did some research over the past year, and it seems that the violations that were given out continue to target bars patroned by people of color and bars that were targeted towards the LGBTQ community. So it's kind of like a law that is in place as a way of possibly shutting down a venue for a reason possibly outside of that law. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, it's so arbitrary. Like, anybody could use it for whatever reason. Like, speaking of the LGBTQ, like, uh, community, like, during Mad Giuliani, like... He was, like, highly conservative and definitely, like, that scene was against everything that he sort of stood for. So a lot of clubs during that time were targeted and they got cabaret violations. Like, they would send in, like, task force and then a cabaret violation would be one of those things they'd get fined for. So you can kind of just sort of wield it as you want to fit your agenda, essentially, which is, like, really, like... Not chill, to say the least. Yeah, and I would add that, you know, the current administration argues that they're not enforcing the law anymore, right? And that's fine. That's great on their part. But you can have another mayor come into office in the next four years and decide to continue using that law and doing what has been done in past history. If a new administration comes in and the law continues to be in the books, they can continue to use it the way it's been used historically. Yeah. So if there's another really conservative mayor comes in, it's like, great. Uh, is it actually true that they're not using it anymore? Or do you think that's more of just like a PR thing that I mean, they're it's, saying? It's definitely a PR thing that they're saying. Yeah, and I would say even if the city is saying they're not doing it, the state liquor authority can enforce local law. And they'll come in and say, well, we gave you a liquor license and we said specifically no dancing because of this cabaret law on your liquor license, but you're allowing dancing, so we're going to revoke your, st- your liquor license. So it can very much continues to be something that venue owners have to worry about. It's also like if you're like not enforcing it, like what are you doing like with it? Like why is it there then? If you like don't want anything to do with it, you're not going to claim that you're going to like uh, use this law. Like then why is it even sitting there to begin with? Like it doesn't make any sense. Like fine, you you see they clearly want like some kind of distance from it, but then also not like really taking responsibility. And also like there are obviously like so many accounts of people who have gotten these violations. Like and you're kind of sort of not addressing that. So it's all a bit strange. 
Why is this issue important to each of you personally, and how does it affect the work you're trying to do? I run a music platform that is all about sort of diversity, and uh, this obviously speaks to the same things. Like, we want to sort of create spaces for people. We want people to be safe when they party. You know, it speaks to the same issues. Like, we don't want to feel oppressed when we just want to like have fun it's it's absurd and this is also just like such a tangible issue for us to rally around like and actually do something and like make some change like around here because you know since the Trump administration came in it's been really sort of hard on everybody to kind of have the morale to kind of like think that the world is going to be okay and like doing something like this really is invigorating like because we have come really far already with this issue like um, further than I expected, honestly. Is there also a sense after the Oakland fire of last year that these issues are more important than ever? Absolutely. I mean, it's been put like back into like safety and spaces and, you know, how limited they are and how much limited knowledge people have around safety and fire and stuff like that has given everyone sort of a new breath of like consciousness, like in regards to these things where these things can, that kind of thing can not happen like ever again. It was a horrible ripple effect in our underground community. One silver lining of that tragedy, I guess, has been that there's been kind of an increasingly open dialogue between artists and artist communities Mm -hmm. um, and the city. Absolutely. Um, And Raphael, I was wondering, like, why is an issue like this so important to you and the work that you do? I mean, me personally, as a born and raised New Yorker and who I am today, I have a lot to credit that to uh, New York City's nightlife. You know, the, the, the big rock revival that happened here in the early 2000s uh, happened in the Lower East Side and in Brooklyn. And there are people out there who would argue that the demise of those venues that allowed for the, the current artists to perform at have closed because of things like the quality of life campaign that Giuliani had and the cabaret law. And I think it's important that the city actually recognizes the importance of our nightlife, the importance of our uh, music um, industry in the city, and find ways where we can make these spaces uh, survive and, and be able to run a viable business so that our artists have spaces for them to uh, show their art and express themselves as well. And for New Yorkers to be able to go out there and experience that music and that art. I read somewhere that people are saying that nightlife is like a multi-billion dollar industry in New York. I need to look up a specific. Mm -hmm. It's a nine to ten billion dollar industry in New York City. And then also the statistic that while there are thousands of nightlife establishments in the city, there's fewer than a hundred that have. Yeah, there's like 20,000 establishments in New York City, apparently. 20,000? Yeah, and then there's fewer than 100 that have this license that we're talking about. Right. Like, if that doesn't, like, scream an issue, like, what else does? Yeah, what we're seeing is uh, the nightlife <laughs> like, is, come like, on. Is, a, is a nightlife monopoly and yeah. is, is becoming heavily corporatized. So anyone who's looking to open up a DIY venue or even any young person just looking to just open up any sort of music venue, they have to jump through 100 hurdles because they can't, to get, they can't get the license and they probably can't afford all of the, to, go, to cut through all the red tape and bureaucracy the city has put in place. 
And sometimes like renovations required, not just from, I don't know if there are renovations required from getting a cabaret license, but just to get all of the licenses you need, often getting all the licenses can make it impossible to run your, your establishment. So let's talk about the other side of the argument. Why are some people in the city not in favor of the cabaret law being repealed? I think there's a lot of fear mongering that has gone on and continues to go on that nightlife is sort of uh, one of the major reasons why the quality of life in certain neighborhoods aren't as great as others, right? Why, uh, if if you do it with the cabaret license, everyone will be dancing in every single community and you won't be able to go to sleep at night because there'll be too much noise. But I, I think that, you know, once they see the value that nightlife actually has and once the city starts putting more value into our nightlife and make our residents understand that that these venues and bars aren't just places for people to get drunk right it, these are these are like social gathering spaces they're important for the quality of life of New Yorkers because they're able to go there after work or in the weekends or in their spare time to meet other people who are like-minded to go out and blow off some steam so it's important that you know we we understand that 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 part of our nightlife and make sure that those who uh, see it as a as a place that's immoral for whatever reason or a place that's going to hinder their quality of life, um, I think it's important for them to recognize that that's not the case. And it's also, it seems like a lot of the venues that are being targeted versus ones that aren't being targeted are ones that appeal to certain demographics of people, whether that's younger or less white or less straight. It seems like it's placing an unfair burden on more on spaces that cater oh, to those absolutely. groups. Absolutely. I mean, it's really just all about money, isn't it? Like, the richest clubs in the city probably get treated the best, and the smaller businesses <laughs> get fined the most and <laughs> treated like garbage, essentially. I mean, it's just, like, amazing that, I don't know, there isn't more sort of empathy for their position, and, like, I think the city needs to, like, address that more because they're literally the backbone of, like, this whole culture and city and why New York City is even cool to begin with. Um, So, yeah. And the smaller, more underground venues are often the start of gentrifying certain neighborhoods Mm -hmm. and bringing businesses to neighborhoods as well, for better or for worse. Yeah, absolutely. How much of this law is based in the idea of keeping people safe? Like, are there safety issues at stake? At some point in the mid-2000s, there were some revisions that were made to the law that would require businesses to have cameras and for their security guards to be screened and to make sure that they have a clean record. And that's because there were some instances where women were being dragged out of nightclubs, where there were stories where some of the security guards were actually taking advantage of the women at the club. And they tied those revisions to the cabaret law. So in order to get the license, you'd have to have your cameras and a security and a security team that's gone through a certain amount of background checks. And would it be possible to keep those safety measures but not make it tied to dancing specifically? Definitely. Yeah. yeah. You repeal and replace. Yeah. So, yeah. I think repeal and replace is, is, a, is a very uh, famous <laughs> term these days. <laughs> but that's what we have to do with the cabaret law. And a lot of things I understand that are covered under the cabaret law are already covered under different safety regulations. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, it's, it's a, again, it's a double check, triple check. You have to go to the fire department, make sure your fire code's up to par. You have to go to the building department, make sure all these other things are in place. And then after you do all of that, then they have to report to DCA, Department of Consumer Affairs, and say, well, the, the venue has all these things in, in, in order then we'll give you a, a license to be able to dance. So just to go over something, you, you mentioned that you recently held the first hearing ever 
um, about repealing this bill. Do you want to just quickly go over like what importance holding a hearing stands in the process of getting this repealed? I mean, I think it's it's extremely important given the the history that we laid out, right, the, the racial history that, that the law has had, and the fear uh, from our city to remove this law off our books. We were able to push beyond that and have a real conversation about the law and actually have the administration sit there and listen for over 20, 30 minutes from advocates about why the law is an issue for our nightlife and, and for its citizens. So, you know, I think it's, it was a major leap, something that, again, hasn't been done before, and we were able to accomplish that by all of us working together. And I think that now, because of all of the attention the law has been getting, we're at a position where we can finally see a repeal. And what needs to happen exactly for the repeal to go through? The hearing we had didn't really address the bill that was drafted on paper, so we have to have another hearing on the actual bill that's on paper, something I'm looking to do in September. After that hearing is done, then it goes through the amendment process. But if we're not going to amend anything, then it'll just go straight for a vote. A second hearing will be scheduled for a vote, and then it'll hit the city council floor, and that's when the general body gets to vote on the bill. And I guess, sorry, from our perspective, like as community organizers, like we're just working on kind of applying pressure in terms of like press and, you know, stuff like this and keeping people engaged with the issue and like wanting them to like stay active and pressuring their council members essentially is like our job. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's insane. Yeah. I was in Hudson, New York over the weekend where a lot of Brooklynites and New York City folks have moved to. And uh, my friend's a DJ up there, and you know I haven't seen him in a while. I just happens to be in town, and he pulls me aside. He goes, "Yo, I really want to thank you for all the work you guys are doing around the cabaret law. You know, it, it sucked, you know, being a DJ down there. You know, that's part half the reason why I'm up here and not in New York. You know, so it's 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 really we're really doing a lot of work, and it's the message is really getting out there, and the importance of why rep- repealing this is is really coming to light. So people are worried that if we repeal the law, we lose those safety precautions. Right. So if if we repeal the law, then those safety precautions are are taken off the books. But, you know, we're all open to looking at what are the safety concerns that we have as a city and reintroducing a law that that just deals with those issues and doesn't have to tie in dancing to the whole conversation. Yeah. And many of these fire and other safety precautions are already laws, Right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. You, you you have to get clearance from the fire department, from the buildings department, and from the NYPD before you even apply for the cabaret license. So, you know, businesses are have, have to do double the amount of work in order to be able to legalize dancing in their venues. So it just doesn't really make sense. It's very onerous. And, you know, a lot of businesses would, would make the argument that this gets in the way of them being able to, to open up a business in the city. One thing is that when I was at the hearing that you had, there were some concerns by the community boards. There's not any kind of like outright opposition to this repeal effort, as far as I can tell. Not really. It seems like it's more just like an issue of red tape that has to be cut. I think it's red tape and just an idea or a concern from the city itself that someone out there is going to have an issue with this, right? No one at this point has reached out to my office and said that repealing the cabaret law is going to ruin their lives. (laughs) Um, Community board did did share concern, but um, they understand that it it is impediment to the businesses in in their districts. So, you know, I I think that we have to take a balanced approach here. You know, let's let's figure out a way again where we can have an open dialogue with the venues and figure out what are the real problems that the neighborhoods have with them, you know, because dancing shouldn't be the problem. 
I think it's more noise complaints that are really the real issues. What needs to happen now in order for the law to be repealed? I guess from a community standpoint, Dance Liberation Network and other groups are like focusing on sort of creating a press campaign around it and like keeping you know, the issue present in people's minds by doing a couple of events here and there and that kind of thing. Um, and then also working with like Raphael, obviously, to get people to pressure their council members into voting uh, for the repeal uh, in September. She, she hit the nail right in the head. You have to organize, reach out to your local city council members. All I need is support and the votes in order to bring the bill to the floor. Once I'm able to do that and the council votes on it, then the repeal will be on the mayor's desk for him to sign. How many people need to vote in favor of the repeal? At least 26 of us. When you say there needs to be a vote, specifically you mean on the committee that you're in charge of? Yeah, so I'm in charge of the uh, Committee of Consumer Affairs, um, and there are five members, including myself. And after the hearing, we'll schedule a vote. So the five members have to vote it out of the committee in order for it to go to the general floor. Uh, Then it goes to the general floor, and then you have 51 council members who are all going to have their shot at voting it up or voting it down. So that's the process, and uh, I think that if we continue to put in the pressure, we'll be able to get there. Are are there specific council members who should be getting pressure put on them? Yeah, I mean, the reality is that New York City, or old New York City, are a little more moderate and a little conservative, right? They're concerned about the, their quality of life being impeded on by night venues and the noise that it might draw into their neighborhoods. So you have members who are very sensitive to that to that idea and, and those concerns, right? So they're the ones that are going to uh, mostly um, be uh, the ones that we're going to have to talk to and really persuade into showing them and telling them why this is a, it's a good idea. So, you know, I don't, I don't expect this to be very, to be easy, but, you know, again, the help of the advocates is going to make this, the job a lot easier. We're going to be reaching out to all of my colleagues and making sure that they understand why this is an important step to take. What sense did you get of where the mayor's office stands on this issue at the hearing? So the mayor's office recently endorsed my other idea, which is to create the office of nightlife, an office that's main job is to create communication between the city, the venues, and the community, right, and help foster and bolster nightlife. So when that conversation came up, it was a time where I brought up the cabaret law and told them that this is getting actually getting in the way of nightlife. They're concerned about jobs. They're concerned about the venues in, in our city and, again, the jobs that it creates. So once I tied in that conversation, they, they started to see or kind of signaled that they see the importance of, of revisiting the cabaret law and figuring out what makes sense and what doesn't. So to a degree, I think that they are – I can't speak for them, but I, I would say that they, they are open and will look to see how they can find a common ground where we can move forward. I mean, the, the, the city is in a very tough spot. They're actually being sued by a business owner in Brooklyn because of the law. And two, uh, because of the local advocacy and because of the the amount of positive press this issue has gotten and the arguments being made about how this has um, been an issue for nightlife in general, I think that they're very sensitive to the idea of repealing this law. Um, so uh, the signals I've gotten has been very positive. Have you had any further contact with the mayor's office since the hearing? As of yet, no. I did reach out to them, sent the letter outlining all the questions that I feel is important for them to answer in regards to the law. I'm just waiting to get some sort of response back. How many other council members are you working with on the repeal? I'm the prime sponsor of the repeal, and you know we're, we're getting co-sponsors to jump on. And the, the, the reason we want co-sponsors is because the numbers show 
you know, you want to be able to get at least 26 members to show that you have the votes, right? And we have two council members from North Brooklyn also that, that signed on. Uh, we have Steve Levin and Antonio Reynoso. Uh, and I believe some other members from across the city has also co-sponsored at this point. So as far as getting it out of the committee, other council members you've spoken to on the committee who have expressed hesitation or have all the people you've spoken to seemed enthusiastic about it? Or has those conversations not really started happening yet? Um, we started the conversations. Uh, I haven't spoken to every member, but uh, one member, Karen Coswell from Queens, has shown strong support for the repeal. I think that's very encouraging. She represents neighborhoods in Queens that I thought would be concerned with repealing the law. And to see that she's on board kind of sends a signal, I guess, to the rest of the, of the council that this is an issue worth looking at. Just to kind of conclude, uh, were there any stories that people shared at the hearing that really stuck out to you guys and touched you? Most people's sort of personal sp- uh, stories, particularly around like bar owners and venues who'd like incurred like fines and been almost abused by sort of this task force that was definitely like uh, I think probably the most memorable for me because it's literally like hurting people who are just like trying to make a living in this mm-hmm. city and it just seems so ridiculous that we're still like have this around and it's affecting people in that way mm-hmm. so that's probably the most profound like thing I could take away from yeah I mean story. I have to agree with, with yeah. Frankie I, I think every story was yeah. important but yeah. my, my favorite and my highlight was John Barclay from Bossa Nova when he said that he, he thought El Chapo, it seemed as if El Chapo was in his venue. <laughs> and, and, I, and, you know, I think that just spoke true to how venue owners feel. It's just like, yo, we're running a business. Why do you have to bring 10 people into my bar at a time where we're, where we're doing business and providing the space and try to shut us down, you know? <laughs> like, I think that really, that really kind of, like, shined some light on, on the And issue. those fines just, like, eat into these little bars' profits, and it's just like, I mean... Like, what are you doing? I don't, I don't understand, you know, it's not right. It's not right. How can people get involved if they're interested in this issue? I guess the best thing would be to follow Dance Liberation Network or on all the social medias, at Dance Liberation on Twitter and Instagram. And then you can just look us up on uh, Facebook. You know, we post every time we think something needs to be communicated to people, so people can kind of just, like, follow from there, really. Yeah. Are there any upcoming events you wanted to shout out? We're going to be doing a party at Bossa Nova in the next two weeks to obviously bring issue to this, let NYC dance party. But we haven't announced it yet, so soon. Tease. Tease, yeah. I know. It's like a tease. I haven't heard about yeah. it. <laughs> but I, I just think it's important for, you know, the simplest thing you can do is, one, join our mailing lists. Uh, that way you can be part of the, the broader conversation. But if you just want to sit at home and do something immediately, just call your local city council member and say, hey, this issue is very important to me and I'm hoping you can vote uh, for the repeal. If you want to be part of the greater movement and continue following this conversation, send an email to my office and an email to Frankie and the Dance Liberation Network and we'll make sure we, we keep you plugged in. You can go to uh, rafaelespinal.nyc and you'll have access to uh, join the mailing list, my mailing list, and, and be able to send me an email as well. Thank you, Raphael and Frankie. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get into the second part of the discussion. Welcome to part two, everyone. Um, I'm here with John Barclay and Rachel Nelson, and we're going to talk about how the cabaret law issue impacts New York's music venues and nightlife. 
So do you want to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Rachel Nelson. I run three different spaces in New York City and Brooklyn. Uh, I started off in DIY back in like the late 90s in Williamsburg, uh, and I now run a place called Secret Project Robot, a bar called Happy Fun Hideaway, and another sort of bar cafe called Flowers for All Occasions. Hi, my name's John Barclay. I've been working in New York City nightlife for around a decade. I was one of the founders of a DIY venue called 285 Kent. I also founded and continued to run Bossa Nova Civic Club, and I have a soda company called White Label Yerba Mate Soda. And I work with Frankie on Dance Liberation Network. And why are you guys campaigning for this law to be repealed? For me specifically, I've watched places be closed. I've watched places be marched. I've watched places sort of live in fear of this law, which is an archaic law that's often used to sort of bring in other laws and other legal things that come down on small business owners. So when I heard that this was actually becoming a thing, I remember when I think maybe in 2002 or 2004, some bars got together and tried to do this a little bit too. And I was there then. I think when I heard that this was actually happening, I was just like, let's get as many people on board as we can and show some support. Because really, it actually it comes down to like fundamentally hurting the economics of an industry that New York City actually says it cares about. And I think for me, that's been the biggest issue. It's like this is a $9 billion industry. New York City's nightlife is not just a small thing. It's why people come here. So to sort of close these places arbitrarily or enact laws arbitrarily is so unfair to the people who are actually making this culture. So for anybody to even, you know, for Raphael to sort of come behind this and Frankie and everybody, it's been sort of huge. I think everybody is like really just on the you know, on their tiptoes waiting to see what happens. I like to dance. I run a venue where people enjoy dancing. I've also felt the negative impact of this. We've been issued citations on it and we've had to curb our behavior, our business model. And, you know, we feel pretty embarrassed to live in this city that calls itself the cultural capital of the world and that, you know, brags about its uh, contributions to music and culture that we're not able to do something is, you know, we're, we're not able to dance something that we all enjoy, something that predates, you know, written history, predates humanity. And yet you can't really control, you know, as a venue owner, who starts dancing or who doesn't, right? And how do you define dancing to begin with? Yeah, so you, like, live in fear, right? So, like, 2 o'clock in the morning, a song comes on, everybody likes. I mean, people want to dance. Like, so you have a few drinks or you don't have a few drinks. Some people don't need drinks to dance. Some people need them. But, like, you just live in fear as, like, a person who runs a space that all of a sudden somebody's going to start having fun and they're going to dance. And, oops, what if it's contagious and they make the person next to them want to dance? And then all of a sudden you've got a whole out-of-control lawsuit violation on your head just because people are expressing themselves. And do you have to intervene if someone starts (laughs) dancing? Uh, for the record, yes. <laughs> Can you just clarify, just so people know, how the cabaret violation plays into the way that 
the full weight of the bureaucracy can bear down on a small business as far as how the fines are given out and all that stuff. I mean, there's like multiple issues. So the cabaret issue is never issued in and of itself by itself. What happens is you probably get on a list somewhere. It happens to a lot of like DIY or sort of places that like are sort of hard for the traditional bureaucracy to understand. So it might be LGBTQ, it might be Latino, it might be black, it might be some strange mixture of artists and weirdos that aren't doing things normally. And somehow you get on this list. And the thing that happens is the cabaret law is the simplest thing they can give you, somebody dancing. It's the thing they can give you that they don't have to really justify. Everything else might be like arguable in court. It might be a code. You might be able to say like, actually, we do have this exit. We do have these things. But the cabaret license, they can walk in and say, this person is dancing, shut everybody, you know, stop everybody, turn the music off, turn the lights on. And so it's used as a sort of mechanism to gain entry and a way to sort of alienate people that's really, really easy. Like, it doesn't require that much work. How is it that a venue gets a cabaret license, and why is it so hard? Why do so few people have them? Well, if you were to just go online and look up a cabaret license as if you were interested in acquiring one, it doesn't look like it's that tough. It's not that expensive, in itself, the big issue is they did some sort of uh, retroactive zoning legislation or something that was introduced later, uh, you know, a couple decades after the law was put into place, which says it has to be in a use group 12, which is essentially a like a commercial manufacturing district. And the issue with that is almost no establishments in New York City are in use group 12. So overwhelmingly, it's literally impossible to acquire a cabaret license for the vast majority of places. If you do happen to be in use group 12, there is quite the web of bureaucratic hell that you have to go through to obtain it. You have to get approval from your community board, which is uh, notoriously difficult to deal with regarding those kind of things. You have to have a lot of sign-offs from Department of Buildings, the fire department. You have to have a lot of documents regarding your electrical, plumbing, all types of stuff. And then on top of that, there's added safety requirements that seem a little bit extra to a lot of people regarding um, fire guards and security, surveillance. The big thing is, though, is is the system is designed where it costs you millions to do this. I'm in the process. Uh, I'm working with some guys on another space, and we're in the process of trying to open up a bigger venue with a cabaret license. And the big issue is that it, it takes you, you know, a year and a half or so, if you're lucky, to get this. And in the meantime, you're paying, you know, 20000 whatever it is, Per month, if you're in Manhattan, you're probably paying, paying triple that. And uh, yeah, so the end result is that the people that do get cabaret licenses, the genre of establishments that have a monopoly on it, they spent a ton of money in order to get that money back. They cater to, let's just say, like finance people, rich European tourists. It's not for average New Yorkers. So to even get in one of these places, first off, they wouldn't let the majority of New Yorkers in with their door policies. But uh, if they did, you're, you know, paying somewhere around $60, $70 to get in, and then you're going to pay, you know, 10 bucks for a, a can of Presidente once you get in the door, which is not something that represents most New Yorkers. So for most of us, 
nightlife is essentially illegal in New York City. For the smaller venues, I know in like venues that have come and gone, sometimes there was a following, there was a lot of regular business, but the full weight of all of the renovations they have to do, all of the fines they get, it just becomes like a a pill battle and they just kind of don't want to deal with it anymore. Yeah, I mean, I I worked in DIY for a while, and then I went over to doing stuff fully. Well, I mean, no one is fully legal, technically legal in New York City, just how it's designed. But we're very above ground. We work with a lot of different departments and strive to be as legal as possible. And the amount of regulation and enforcement that we face in the above ground legit world versus DIY places that are doing a lot of time stuff 100% illegal zero regulation there's no comparison i get visited by the authorities i would say roughly 200 times more so the more you try to be by the book the more you'll be the more you're punished 100% and that's problematic cuz if the overall goal is to keep people safe there needs to be a dialogue Correct. And my stance is that it's not about keeping people safe at all. How do you think that the conversation people are having around the cabaret law ties into larger conversations that people are having about the sustainability of nightlife in New York and this moment where it's so expensive and hard to maintain anything? I think what people don't understand, and maybe even to some extent the people who are enforcing these laws, is that a lot. in order to even get your licensing, you have to jump through a lot of hoops. You have to be safe. You have to, I was saying earlier, you have to be fingerprinted. Like, we aren't places that are unsafe just by the fact that, like, the city doesn't allow you to be unsafe. But by creating more and more tenuous paperwork and bureaucracy, it's basically making it so only elite people can open these places. Like New York City used to be a place of small businesses. It used to be a place of neighborhood bars. So for me, like I joined together with friends and we put in all of our savings and we opened a place. But that's becoming less and less able to happen. You need investors. And it's taking away the fundamental thing that makes New York City New York, which is that you sort of you can come here and make it and you can be somebody. And it's also taking away the fundamental fabric of neighborhoods, which are like not generic. They're actually specific. And that's sort of if we keep on closing down these spaces, these small places that are small, fun places where people are dancing, 30 people, 50 people, even 150 people. All we're going to have is these sort of mega clubs that John was talking about. And that's not why people come here. So contextualizing that, it's like the whole thing is, is that. You can't have it both ways, right? You can't be the pla- the city that never sleeps but doesn't allow dancing. You can't sort of be this place that encourages nightlife and wants it to be here but then make it so difficult for small places to exist that you sort of find them out of business. And it happens over and over again. So I think the thing is is just basically the, the conversation is coming up now because I know bars like the bar I worked at for 12 years before I opened my own bar just closed because they couldn't deal with it anymore. It's no longer the place of small businesses. And once we become just a place of wealthy, we're just going to end up with condos and chain stores and nobody's going to come here. So it's going to sort of deplete the economic sustainability of the city in general. Yeah, that was something that I was really interested in at the hearing was that it seemed like a lot of the arguments being made are not just cultural, but economic. Yeah. Um, and I was curious if you guys wanted to elaborate on how this is like an economically beneficial policy for the city to repeal this. Yeah, well, I mean, so I sort of just touched upon it. I mean, that's my background. I studied economics mm-hmm. in college. And so for me, it's like it's basic sort of like supply and demand. And the, the simplicity of it is just that you can have more people spending more money because there's a demand for places to dance. There's a demand for it. It's like 
Eco 101. So when you're making that impossible, you're basically creating monopolies. And monopolies actually aren't functioning. That's like when you end up with stock market crashes when you have monopolies. So we're basically creating a nightlife monopoly. And so only wealthy places are able to survive, and then the small places can't. And then you have like these districts where what's worse? What's worse for a neighborhood? People dancing and making a little noise, or empty storefronts where people are scared to walk down at the middle of the night. I mean, anybody who was in Williamsburg in two, in nineteen ninety nine remembers what it was to walk down Bedford Ave when there was nothing on there, and now it's thriving, and that's because small businesses. So like that would be my argument: is that like economically, like we are we are creating. Like first there's a bar, there's a coffee shop, then there's a clothing store, then there's maybe more bars and more restaurants, but it's like usually the bar and the coffee shop are first in the neighborhood. And I'm not saying about just gentrification because I think there's like artists and the people who are sort of often at the end of this are pushed out. Like I've moved four times, my rent's increased 600% since 2004. And so it is sort of changing the fabric of who can exist here. Supposing that this, this repeal campaign is successful, how do you think the landscape of New York nightlife might shift in a positive direction? I mean, just simply, I think that businesses won't live so much in fear. Like, being able to not put on a Facebook post that there's, like, a dance party tonight. Being able to, like, not be nervous that, like, somebody's dancing too close to a window. There's, like, the really simple positive things of just, like, businesses not living in fear. I think all the other safety measures are already, you know, just part of this conversation. The safety measures that we've been talking about are pretty much addressed in a lot of other laws, including just exits and general fire safety and fire code. So I think, for one, it would just help us not live in fear of being shut down, and it wouldn't be sort of a Trojan horse that lets, you know, other laws be sort of enforced that aren't necessarily, they're going to sometimes be thrown out even. Thank you, Rachel and John. You've been listening to The Thump Podcast, a production of Vice Media and Thump. I wanted to shout out Tim Barnes, who engineers and edits The Thump Podcast. You can find him on Twitter at TimBarnes451. And we'd also like to shout out Lorna Dune, who made the music for this podcast and whose music can be heard at lornadune.bandcamp.com. If you'd like to read some of the stories we've been talking about, please log on to our website, thump.vice.com. You can also follow us on social media over at twitter.com slash thumpthump or facebook.com slash thumpthump. If you like what you've heard, please rate and subscribe on iTunes. Writings help, but word of mouth is the only way we get this out there. Have a good one. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. 